Good morning, everyone. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning again. Very blessed with the songs we sang, songs of worship and praise, and just worshiping God for who He is. Why don't we start this morning with a word of prayer? If you all bow your heads. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you that you hear our singing, you hear our prayers. We know that you are here among us, and we just pray that you would open your word to us this morning. Pray you give me wisdom, clarity of thought and mind as I share what you've laid in my heart. Just pray that your presence would be here. We just commit this time to you. We pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, for a devotional this morning, if you could all open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. go over the last portion of this chapter, especially focusing on our fruit. Let's take a few minutes to consider the fruit in our life as it compares to the fruits of the Spirit. In general, our fruit is fairly easy to see. It's the outward evidence of what's inside Now, in theory, it is possible to have fake fruit and to tie up some fruit onto our branches, so to speak. But, you know, it's not going to last real long because eventually that will rot and there's no life in it. You know, we can put on a nice smile and be happy and whatever, but real fruit grows and fake fruit does not. So I want to focus especially on good fruit this morning, but I want to briefly go over some of the verses before that where it talks about the, what does it refer to it as, the works of the flesh in verse 19. So let's read there, starting in verse 19. It says, now the works of the flesh, which are manifest, sorry, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So that lays out their quite a list, and it can seem like a fairly ugly list at first glance, and it is. And some of the words that uses there, we don't use a whole lot in our English today. Um, some of them are more common. Many of us know, I think, what idolatry is. The first, or the, well, it's not the first one mentioned, it's halfway down there in verse 20. Um, just worshiping things that aren't God. It can be images, it can be um, sports, anything. I mean, there's many things that could be put in there. Um, 
hatred, we know what that is, just hating, being hostile in general. Variance, there in the middle of verse 20, is just simply a quarrel or a contention, having debate and strife and all that. Something that many of us obviously find repulsive in others, and we should in ourselves as well. And that's how all of these works of the flesh are and should be, fairly repulsive to any of us that are following after Christ. And uh, on their emulations, it's just simply jealousy. Jealousy for any reason, really, but... Jealous of others, jealous of what they have, jealous of what we don't have, whatever. Seditions, just division, disunion. These are all just fruits of the flesh and evident that evidence that the flesh is in charge of our will. And obviously that is not a position we want to be in. But then it goes on in verse 22 and talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Essentially, it's just evidence in our life that the Spirit of God is controlling our will and our actions. So let's read in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. I think we'll stop reading there for now. So we're going to look at each of these fruits and just see what they look like a little bit and give a um, description of them and ways to see them in our own life. The first one is love, and that love is the agape love, which is more than just a familiarity of, like, Some people would say they love ice cream. Well, that's not the same type of love. I'd call that more liking than loving. Agape love is a brotherly love of affection, goodwill, and benevolence. And that word benevolence has the whole idea of giving and being generous in that. There's a verse early on in chapter 5 where it talks about... um, See, it's in verse 13. It says, but by love serve one another. And that serving one another is describing a little bit what that benevolence is. Like it's a love that gives of itself. Um, In John, Gospel of John chapter 13, it says, um, speaking of Love, it says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And in John 15, it says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Obviously, that is what Christ has done for us and what he calls us to do. Obviously, none of us have laid down our physical life yet for our friends. But there is more to laying down our life for our friends than just 
physically dying. Like there's things we can give up for our friends. Maybe it's a day of work that we were hoping to earn another dollar that we go help our friends. Maybe it's our own agendas or our ideas or ideals and how something should be done or could be done better or whatever. That we lay, lay it down for our friends. When we love our brothers with agape love, caring for them is more important to us than caring for ourselves. We put their good ahead of our own. And that, putting their good ahead of our own, is evidence that the Spirit of God is in control of our will. There won't be any room there for jealousy, envy, or strife when we have a love like that. And love is just one of the fruits. But just thinking of that one in particular, is there fruit on our love branch? Is there outward evidence there of what's inside? Next one is joy. In verse 22. Joy is fairly easy to understand. It's being cheerful. It can be described as a calm delight. It's not necessarily being loud and boisterous, but it can be a calm delight. If we stop and think about it, we should always, in any situation, be able to find something to be joyful about, regardless of our circumstances. This joy is not dependent on circumstances. Um, Christ said he wants his joy to remain in us and for our joy to be full. I know I have in my own life many times where that isn't the case, where my joy is not necessarily full, for sure not running over. (laughs) But if that is a fruit of the Spirit, evidence that the Spirit of Christ is working in our life, if we can have joy, a calm delight, Paul often referred to being full of joy. He talked about praying with joy. He talked about um, when he would be full of joy upon meeting someone or that he was full of joy when he met someone or when he heard good news about someone, he was full of joy. He talks about when he suffered for Christ, being full of joy. And it's easy to be full of joy if we have good things happen like We meet someone we haven't seen for a while. Yeah, we can be full of joy. But then, even as Paul's testimony about suffering for Christ and being joyful, rejoicing in his sufferings, that's when it is more difficult. But for a Christian with true joy, it's not dependent on the circumstances under whether or not we choose to find something to to be joyful in. There's always something we'll be able to find that we can be calmly delighted about. There won't be room for doom and gloom if we're always looking for something to be joyful about. So how is our joy branch? Is there fruit on it? Is there outward evidence that there is calm delight on the inside?
The next fruit mentioned here is peace. And there's two types of peace that I want to look at here. There is a peace between individuals or between countries or between um, people in general. And then there's another peace that is just an inner calm within ourselves. So looking at that first one there of a peace between individuals basically gives the idea of being being one in unity or set at one again. Um, and many of these fruits tie together, like obviously unity and being set at one again after a um, disagreement. It's going to take love and it's going to take sacrificing So all these tie in together very much so. Um, If there's peace, it means there's no strife, no conflict, no battles or arguments that need to be finished. Just a mutual understanding that all is well. There's an example of that in Genesis 33 I would like to look at. We could turn there. This is a story of Jacob and Esau. And many of you know the history there, how Jacob stole the birthright from Esau and seemed like they had at least somewhat contention there throughout their growing up years and you know it would seem reasonable to expect that not all would be well between them that it wasn't unity there they weren't at one and I think Jacob realized that and he was praying to God for wisdom on what to do and how he would meet Esau when he heard that Esau was coming to meet him And he devised this plan to send um, gifts over. And he sent them gifts multiple times in droves of animals and whatever. And then on the last day, then he himself went with more gifts. And he goes to meet Esau. And in verse... Verse 8, it says, and he said, what, of, verse 8 of Genesis 33, what meanest thou by all this drove, this is Esau asking, what meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he said, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother, keep that thou hast to thyself. And that is just a perfect example of being at one again. There was no conflict that needed finished or no argument that needed settled. Esau said he had enough. To him, it was, um, there was peace between them. And that is a good illustration of that type of peace between individuals where there, is, there was conflict and then there was um, a mutual understanding that all is well between them.
So back to Galatians again. The other type of peace of the inner calm is essentially just a tranquil state of rest, of inner rest. It's a peace that passes understanding. It defies logic. It doesn't make sense to those that look on as they see that peace. And the only way to have a peace like that that is not conditioned or that has no um, dependence on circumstances is when we believe by faith that God is in control of everything in our life and that we trust him completely. Like it's one thing to know that yes, God is in control, but if if I'm in a car and I know the driver's in control, but I don't trust the driver, there's still not peace there. But if we know that the driver's in control and we trust him completely, then we have peace. And that is the way it is for us to have that settled rest is we have to know that God is in control of our life. And beyond that we have to put our trust in that, our faith in that. And it's when we're in that place that we can have that peace that passes understanding. It's completely insulated from the circumstances around us. Like it doesn't matter what we're going through. If we know that God is in control and we trust Him, then the circumstances are like water off a duck's back. No circumstance or event can destroy true peace. It only reveals it. It can show to others what peace is there when we go through difficult things. <clears throat> so how is our peace branch? Is there outward evidence that we are at peace with our brothers? Can others tell that all is well between us? Is there outward evidence of our inner peace, peace that defies logic? Is it obvious to others that we have that complete faith and trust in God? Not only that he is in control, but that we also trust him completely. The next fruit there is long-suffering, which is patience, patience with others, slowness in avenging wrongs. And this all ties in with love and peace, and relationships. Long-suffering is to turn the other cheek, not demanding justice when we are wronged. It's just another outward evidence of having the Spirit of God within us. The next one there, gentleness. Kind and caring. The dictionary of, or the dictionary definition of gentleness is Moral excellence in character or demeanor, which can be kind of broad, but basically it's just saying that someone is of excellent character. Um, And I think it especially is um, true for relationships. I think that's mostly what it's meaning. I mean, there's ways to be gentle to objects and animals, I guess, too, but I think it's mostly referring to relationships 
and having an excellent character or demeanor. And just thinking about when there's um, when there's someone that's hurting or someone that is going through a tough time, someone that is not of an excellent character or not kind and caring can hardly be of a help to someone that's struggling or hurting. Um, gentle, pe- gentle people help the wounded. They help bring healing. And the opposite of being gentle would be harsh and callous. And when someone is hurting and looking for someone to care or some, someone to confide in, they're not going to go find some harsh, callous person that's going to scoff at them or whatever. They want someone that's gentle, that can help find healing where there's wounds. <clears throat> and again, it is another, um, another of the fruits that is evident of the Spirit of God within us. Just an outward... Um, and outward evidence. The next one list there is goodness, and that is just simply upright in heart. And there's um, many ways that that can apply to our life. Just being upright and being a good person. It was said of Christ, or I forget exactly what the context is, where it talks about the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. It's just um, being good. Good and upright. Next one there is faith. And I would describe that as a total persuasion in the existence and attributes of God. And just being persuaded that um, that everything God said he is, that he is. Totally persuaded that God is eternal and that he is omnipotent and merciful, loving and all-knowing. And just being having... Yeah, essentially a total persuasion that, that that is who God is, that he is who he said he was. And a faith like that obviously ties into peace and to some of those other things, um, joy despite circumstances. Obviously to have that joy and that peace, you have to have a faith in God and that he is who he said he is and that he can do what he says he will do. So how is our faith branch? Is there fruit on it? Is there outward evidence that we have that faith, that underlying assurance, that persuasion that God is who he said he is and that there is all of the attributes that are mentioned in the scripture about God, that those are true and that they will, um, they can be depended upon. The next one here it mentions is Meekness, and that is a humble and controlled strength. It's not saying it's weakness. I think it's a fairly common saying that meekness is not weakness. 
but it is a controlled spirit. And it's very similar to some of these other fruits, like long-suffering and gentleness, goodness. Um, But I think there should be a... um, There should be evidence in our life that the Spirit of God is controlling our strength, that it's humble and controlled by Christ. And then the last fruit there that it mentions is temperance. And that is simply self-control, having power over our own body and senses. <clears throat> our own body and senses. And that's very different from the world's ambitions. The world is obsessed with gratifying the senses. Taste, touch, smell, hearing, seeing. And many, many people seem to have no control over their own senses. They do whatever feels good, whatever sounds good, they listen to, whatever looks good, they look at. And, you know, whatever tastes good, they eat. And many of those things with no self-control, no no temperance in um, any of those things. And it's very much part of the whole spirit of the world and what the world pursues. It's just gratifying the senses. But for the Christian, if we have the Holy Spirit within us, there will be outward evidence that what we taste, touch, hear, smell, and see is led by the Spirit of God. And that, um, forget how the verse goes, something about they will think it's strange that you run not with him to the same excess of riots. So it's obvious that there will be things that can be seen that we do that will be evidence that the Spirit is guiding us. And that's why it's called a fruit of the Spirit. So how are our fruits? Is there outward evidence that we are abiding in the vine? Or is it more of a tying on fake fruits? So I think it does us well to take inventory of how our life compares to the fruits of the Spirit compared to the works of the flesh that it lists there. And the easiest way to do that is to just check the fruit. Are we walking in the Spirit where we can check the fruit? Do we love? We can look for the fruit in that. Do we have joy? We can check the fruit. Do we have peace? We can check the fruit. Is it the peace that passes all understanding? Or is there evident anxiety and things like that? And on down the list, there's all these things we can check the fruit on to compare whether we are walking in the Spirit or walking in the flesh. And then in verse um, 25, it says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And I don't know exactly what that's all referring to, but I get the impression that it's saying that, you know, if you are in the Spirit at one point in time, do not make that just an event, but make it a continual walk that is progress forward. 
That's all I had to share this morning. I trust that we can all be blessed as we consider our fruits and as we take inventory of what fruits are visible to others and what um, what the outward expression is of the spirit that's within us. Yeah, bless you all.